Welcome to Pocketry Presents, a podcast for emerging and aspiring poets. I'm Indrani Pereira, founder of Pocketry, the home of unheard voices. I'm coming to you from the lands and waterways of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge that this is stolen land and that sovereignty has never been ceded. In this episode of Pocketry Presents, I'm interviewing an established poet about their experiences performing their poetry in front of an audience. Joining me today from Singapore is Melissa Rani T. Selva. Melissa Rani T. Selva is a Malaysian writer and spoken word poet with notable performances at the Jaipur Literature Festival, Storyfest Singapore and TEDx Gateway. Her first book, Taboo, is a poetic exploration of her master's thesis on the constructs and representations of the Malaysian Indian identity. Her poems have been translated in French and Bahasa Malaysia. She co-founded If Walls Could Talk, Poetry Open Mic, and co-published an anthology of 100 poems by 61 poets from Malaysia titled When I Say Spoken, You Say Word. Presently, Melissa Rani is a co-editor of the literary journal singprorimo.com. Welcome, Melissa Rani. Hello, Indrani. Thank you so much for having me once again. Oh, it's fantastic. I had such a blast last time that I just had to get you back to hear all about your spoken word performing experience. And you've performed on some pretty impressive world stages, and I'm keen to hear about your journey. Oh, yes. Um, Let's get into it. I'm very happy to talk to you again. Uh, I hope you've eaten and I I hope you've had a drink of water. I have too. Let's get started. Great. All right. The first question that I have for you is, I'm wondering if you remember where your first open mic or the place you performed your poetry in front of an audience was. Oh, yes. I I will never forget. (laughs) I will never forget. So I was 15 years old. And at the time, my parents had sent me to a bit of a boot camp, like a weekend boot camp, summer camp kind of thing. And it was called Girl Power Camp. And it was a whole bunch of girls from all different schools. And we had to, it was like, a, like this empowerment camp, like girl scouty kind of thing. Okay. Anyway, so in the camp, they had a talent competition. And everybody, you, you could perform in like groups or as an individual. But obviously, when everybody was like tasked to perform at a, a talent competition, I don't know why. But the natural human in- inclination is to dance or sing. And I don't dance or sing. So <laughs> I was thinking, like, what should I do? Like, where should I, uh, what, what, you know, what talent do I have to go on stage and do, right? And the talent competition was in about two hours time. And we were all getting ready and, like, taking showers and, like, getting dressed and getting ready. And I decided to do the only thing I know how to do best, which is write. So I think even at the time, I've just, I just always wanted to be a writer and I knew, and I was writing poetry. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to write a thing. I'm just going to write a poem. So I remember sitting in a bathroom stall <laughs> and writing aggressively on scraps of A4 paper that I could find lying, lying around. And, and because my notebook had run out of pages <laughs> and I wrote this poem about what it means to be a girl. And so everybody was dancing on stage. And I remember at the time, the group that went before me was dancing to Pussycat Dolls. So they were were dancing to this song. And then I go on stage and they ask me what I need. And I was like, I just need one microphone. I don't need anything else, just one microphone. And I was holding my scraps of paper and 
I read my first poem. I remember it had about six verses and, um, and it had a refrain and the refrain is like girls and we're like this and like, you know, and like it kind of goes in that kind of tone. I won the competition and it was really bizarre <laughs> because I remember, um, because it was a pretty, like it was one of those camps that was pretty notable and um, Seventeen Magazine wanted to interview the winner of the talent competition. And I think they were expecting like a dance group or a singer. And it was just me. <laughs> and like I wrote the poem. And they were like, do you have pictures? I'm like, well, picture of me on stage holding a piece of paper. So eventually they published part of the poem because they needed to fill up space in the magazine. <laughs> anyway, so um, yeah, so simultaneously, like my first gig um, also kind of led to an excerpt of the poem being published in a, in a magazine, which was kind of fun. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. That was my first gig. And it was an audience of, of students, of, of all girls, all women. And they were really excited and they were really supportive. And I, I still remember how they cheered and also how their faces just looked at me. Like they just made eye contact the whole time. I think people don't really do that, you know, at the time. Like, this is like 16 years ago. I think people don't really go on stage and read from a piece of paper. And that's kind of what I did. That's a phenomenal first story. And the fact that you ended up in Seventeen magazine and an excerpt of your poem as well and winning the competition, that, that's incredible. And how did it feel for you having everybody making eye contact while you were reading this poem? I, I remember the paper was shaking. Oh, I, I forgot to say this. So, so I didn't know, but they, um, the, the camp coordinator printed out my poem. They asked me to submit my piece to them. They did. They typed it out and they printed it out on green pieces of paper and they handed it to every single participant. And then they got me back on stage at the end of the camp and they asked me to read it all over again. And this time, the second time I had to read it, my hand was shaking. I still remember how the green paper was just like flapping in my hand <laughs> because I don't know. I don't know why it was easier the first time, but the second time it was terrifying. I, I, I really can't explain it. But I remember when everybody was watching me, I didn't really care. All I could think of was the next, the next word, the next line. I knew exactly how I wanted it to sound. I was so into my poem that I, and the chorus line and the refrain that I just didn't care. I, I remember thinking like this is 16 years ago, but I still remember thinking like, okay, these people are looking at me really weird because everybody else who was like singing and dancing, people would just cheer. And I think the audience just didn't know what to do with themselves. You know, this is before a spoken word and you had like, you're snapping of fingers and, and clapping and cheering. Like, this is not a thing. So people just stood and stared at me <laughs> throughout the duration of the performance. I love that you were so passionate about your poem and caught up in how you knew it should sound, that it didn't matter what the audience was doing. That is fantastic. Yes, I mean, I think, I think we should all be really into the piece, you know? I, I'm not sure about you, Andrani, but for me, when I'm on stage, it's just between me and the poem. The audience is second because I like you've worked so hard on your poem, right? And you just you you know exactly how it needs to be presented and be given to the world. So nothing should shake that, right? I don't know, but over the years, that's kind of something that's very important to me. 
I think that's very, very good advice to serve the poem and then the rest will come because when you write the poem, you're trying to capture something. And if you are concentrating on sharing that and doing service to the poem, I can see that that would be less nerve-wracking than worrying about, oh, do I have something on my nose or what's everyone going to think about me? No, you're not doing that. You're just thinking about the poem. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And, and I think, I mean, I know this now. I didn't know it back then. I think audiences need to figure out what they need to do. And it's not our responsibility, you know? <laughs> like, their reaction is just not our responsibility. Mm. That's in beautiful advice as well for um, in a spoken word situation and just in life generally, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask you, you were only 15, but given that you were so young and already, you know, winning talent competitions, I want to ask you how long you've been writing poetry at that point. And it wouldn't surprise me if you said like since you were three. Uh, <laughs> I, so I've always wanted to be a journalist. I always, I always wanted to write full length stories. I, I never really like set out to be a poet. That was never a thing for me. And I guess it was the way I was writing that just kind of formed itself, you know, like I figured out format as I went along. And even until today, like I acknowledge that a lot of my work ha- and my repertoire has been poetry, but I do write other things and I do strive to write other things as well. So to answer your question, I can't really say which year um maybe it was in primary school when we had to write a pantun um have you written a pantun before yes but it didn't really go anywhere i know that's a malaysian form yes in malaysia uh, a pantun is very common and it's something we learn in primary school and it's it's four lines and uh, and it has an ABAB rhyme scheme yeah, but you know, it doesn't really go anywhere. Sometimes it's got some exciting message hidden in between or it's a joke. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know. I would say primary school, yeah. Yeah, okay. And just shifting now to, um, you know, say a little bit in the future when you've been writing poetry for a while and performing in front of audiences, do you remember who your first feature set was with? <laughs> I don't remember. I wish I did. That's it's so embarrassing, but I don't remember. If okay, you... I, I, I put it this way. I remember, I remember earning it. That I remember. So now I grew up in, uh, in or rather I was growing as a poet in the Malaysian poetry scene in which a lot of it is built on open mic and a bit of slam. So it really depends on what kind of poetry scene you you grew up in, okay? Or you like started writing and working in. In Singapore, if you ask certain poets in certain generations of poets, uh, they kind of grew up in a heavy slam poetry type scene. So it's very competitive. It's very uh, point-based. That's not how I was, you know, that I grew up. So I figured out a long time ago, like when I first started, that it was that you have to earn a feature spot. And how you do that is that you need to succeed and do really, really well at open mics so that curators notice you and notice your work and they want to put you and give you a 10-minute feature set. So I remember earning it. I remember working to earn it. I remember the day someone told me, hey, uh, we want you to close the show. And that was a huge honor. 
Uh, and that was that was like okay. That means my work is solid enough that they trust me with this with this responsibility. Um, yeah. So I don't remember who I featured alongside, but I definitely remember earning it. That's a a nice way to look at it. That you you need to earn it by going to the open mics and performing. And when you say you know doing well at open mics, what do you mean by that? So I guess it's evaluation of the strength of the poem. So when I, when I say doing well at open mics, it means like, it, it could mean different things for different people, right? So uh, I guess it's when you do a poem and how much of the audience has invested their attention on your piece. Have you hold the crowd, like, like have you successfully hold the crowd throughout the entire, throughout the duration of your poem? Or uh, have you lost them in parts? And of course, uh, another way of evaluating how successful you are in open mics that I have learned is the range of form that you have. So you have like one funny poem, one terribly sad poem, one political poem. And these are kind of the elements that make up a feature poet. Because if you are just writing one type of poem all the time, sure, if you're successful in that one thing, then you will be known for that one thing. But that one style that you have might not be feature worthy in a lot of places. So I figured out uh, over time that the more diverse your range form and subject matter is, in your poetry, the more likely you are to earn a feature spot at a lot of different venues and spaces. Yeah, that's fantastic because it's hard to know, I think, as a poet what to perform. You sit there looking at your poems and you're like, well, I really like these ones and not knowing what an audience is going to like. You can never really know because you don't know who's going to be there. But if you're doing what you're saying, which is, you know, picking like different emotions and different styles and forms, then you're at least giving them a nice sample, I suppose, of what you're capable yes. of. Yes. I mean, it, and, and when I say like diversity, I also mean like long and short poems. Like, um, so typically if you go to an open mic, the standard procedure is that they would give you five minutes per poet. You should like play the game. Don't use all that five minutes for one poem unless you think it's a phenomenal poem. You know, you're better off um, using that time for two poems, one short one, one long one. Or if you can, two really short ones, but tight, strong, punchy, and then one long one in between. And these are just like, there. no one's written a rule book on these things. This is something you just kind of observe and, and learn and, you know, you study the animal of the open mic in the different countries and scenes that you go to. And then as you perform, you figure it out and you, as you go. I love the animal of the open mic. I'm imagining it padding through bars and cafes, you know, around the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's really what it is. And honestly, it's ever changing. The open mic scene today is not the same as it was when I started uh, 10 years ago. It's, it's just, it's not the same. And you always have to kind of like pay attention to it, pay attention to the audience and how they're responding and what, you're, what they're doing. And then when you go on stage, you curate a tight set. So I, I've always curated my, my sets and by thinking of how a curator of that open mic would curate a set, you know? So like, if I'm going to use my five minutes, I'm going to make sure that my five minutes is so feature worthy. And then eventually when you, when you become a feature, you know exactly how to curate your feature set. Mm, Because you've already been doing it. Yes. Mm. Yes. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. Wanting to just ask you a bit of questions about actually performing those poems within those sets. And I'm just wondering if your performing style has changed and evolved over time and, and how, if it has. Oh, um, definitely. <laughs> um, I wouldn't say it's changed drastically. I would say that it, I have learned new forms to add to my arsenal. That's how I would phrase it. When I first started out, I had, like when I look back now, I'm aware that I had a very distinct rhythm in, my, in, in, in the way my poems sound and the way my poems reveal themselves in each verse. And I enjoy comedy. It's very important to me. It's a central part of my poems. I always have a line that is going to make you like chuckle or like snicker or like do something, you know, like I, I like that emotion very much and I strive to achieve that, uh, even if I'm writing a political piece. So that's kind of how it started. And then over time, my voice became, um, I learned how to vary my voice and I started to write longer pieces that were responding to mythology. So I, I've written, so one of the examples that I can think of right now is um, I was reimagining Draupadi from Mahabharata and I wanted Draupadi to have a very angry, but also a very coy voice because she, you know, she embodies the, the power, but also this cheekiness of a manic pixie dream girl, you know? She was supreme as a goddess, but she was also incredibly flirtatious and, um, and playful. And I wanted to weave that into the piece. So it's a long piece. It's an eight minute piece, but I, each verse has a different tonality to it, a different, it takes you on a, a bit of a journey. You know, it's not the same like three minute poem that you would naturally do in a slam. It's, it, you, you need to kind of invest more attention to it. And when I write these longer pieces and if I'm on stage, then I can now add movement to the piece. And that's not something I was able to do a long time ago, but nowadays I've like figured out how to do it. You know, like, like years later, I figured out how to kind of like have not necessarily props, but use my body to move and engage the audience in each verse and in different verses. And uh, yeah, um, if I'm going to ask about, if you're, if you're asking me about like right now at this present state, a lot of my work takes on a lot of prosaic it's very dense, it's very heavy, um, it's very page-based poetry that I'm bringing back onto the stage. And, um, and I think it's, my writing style has also kind of changed and evolved somewhat because I'm writing a lot more prose and a lot of micro essays. So my poetry is also kind of being fed this style. Um, but when I go on stage, it's, it, you know, when, it, when there is a punchline, you honor the punchline. But then you also honor that, okay, it's also a block of text and you just kind of like figure out how you're going to carry that to the best of your ability without losing the audience. So maybe the piece needs to be shorter, but tight, but also heavy. Does that make sense, Indrani? Mm-hmm, it does. And I like that over time you've figured out how to add in movement as well. And then now looking at, you know, taking those sort of more page-based works and bringing them alive for an audience too. And I wonder when you're doing that, 
and performing these pieces, these longer pieces, do you memorise them or are you reading them from a phone or from the page? When I'm doing a performance, like a full-on performance, that is definitely memorised. I would say most of the time, if I'm going to go on stage, I try to make sure that it's memorised. But when I'm reading like heavy, dense, page-based pieces, I would read from the phone. Uh, sorry, sorry, did I say phone? No, I would read from the piece of paper. Uh, I enjoy a good piece of paper. I don't like reading from the phone. Yeah, so that's what I would do. And what do you do if you make a mistake when you, you're reciting a memorised poem? Oh, uh, I would snap my fingers like that. home. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I would I would snap my fingers or I would I would just like uh, until I conjure the piece and I would be really quiet and I don't care. I don't care about how it looks. Uh, I don't think about the audience. I don't think about anything. Um, and over the years, I've also kind of figured out another way to kind of bring myself bring myself back into the piece. I the last word. Okay, so let's say. I'm doing a piece and I've forgotten the word. The last word was step, okay? The last word that I remember was step and I don't remember the next thing. And I've been quiet for too long and I've snapped my fingers for too long. I would start improvising. <laughs> and I would just, I would just be, I would just improvise. I would just do this entire like verse that was completely improvised or I would repeat the word step and step in different uh, vocal ranges until I come back to the poem. Because the thing is, audience doesn't know that you forgot. The audience thinks that you are doing something spectacular on stage that is so meta and they don't understand. And so they just, they just hold and give you their attention. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I've been doing. That's fantastic. And it's so true, isn't it? Nobody knows what you're supposed to be saying next except you. Nobody knows. Yeah, except you've forgotten. But, you know, they don't know that it was meant to be this line. If you say another line, they have no idea. Yeah. And, and once there was once when I completely improvised a piece. And then at the end, and I was like, thank you very much. And I was like, I just wanted to say, that's not the poem. <laughs> but you have been so, you and I are so fortunate to have witnessed a new poem. And I wish I wrote it down. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. Um, I'm wondering then, do you share your poetry with anyone before you perform it in front of an audience? Yes, I do. So at every juncture of my life, I have always had at least two people I can call anywhere, anytime in the world and ask them, can you listen to me read a poem? <laughs> and, they will, and they will listen to me. And I made sure that one person is a poet or a writer and the other person is not at all because I want two different types of feedback. I want the person who is a writer to tell me, oh, that line does not work. Oh, this is great. Oh, that's not good. Oh, is this what you're going for? Yeah. And I want the person who's a non-writer to tell me, oh, you lost me. Or, oh, that was great. I was really into it. Because whenever we go on stage, we need to acknowledge that not everyone in the room is a writer. Mm. Someone, a lot of times people are just there because they want to have a good time and they want to listen to something that they cannot articulate. And so they're listening to you and they are the most important people in the room. 
if we fail to hold their attention, we've not really succeeded in our piece, you know, and our piece needs a bit of work. So, yeah. Mm, that's a great idea, having um, those two perspectives, one from a fellow poet and a writer, and then also one who's outside it all so that you can get sort of gauge, I guess, how the poem's going to be received when you do perform it. Yes. Yes, because sometimes the like the person who's a writer will suggest edits for you, which you can choose to honor or choose to ignore. And that's totally fine. But the most valuable feedback will come from the person who's not a writer. Because if you cannot hold your attention, or if they don't like something and you've and they've you've lost them, it, the piece needs work. Mm. You know? Yeah, the piece just needs work. Yeah, yeah. And I, it can be really hard to get that feedback, I think, but also important to listen to it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And they will not be able to tell you like, oh, yeah, this line doesn't work for me. They'll just tell you like, oh, I, I don't care for it. Hmm. Or I, yeah, that it, you made me feel like, um, like, I want to cry. You reminded me of my dad, you know, when you did that thing. I mean, you, when you said this line, this is very valuable feedback. Because it tells you what you have achieved and what you, or, you know, and, and if that's what you're going for, then you have, you're successful, you know? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to ask you about what sort of poems you perform. Are you performing poems that are new or do you perform older poems? I guess, when is it that you decide this poem needs to go in front of an audience? Oh, it's, it's, um, it really depends on the situation and I, I've been, well, before the pandemic and even after, like even during, as we are in the pandemic now, I, a lot of my performing and my work, it's, has been touring based, you know, like I go to different countries and different stages. So it really depends on the stage that I'm at. If I'm performing in the UK and it's, it's an entirely new audience, I need to do I need, I need to have or I need to curate a set of poems that introduce me, show them where I can go and the range that I'm at, and maybe sneak in something that I care about that I want them to care about. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's a combination of these things. But if I'm performing on home ground and it's people who know my work and have seen me do this thing for a long, long time, that I need to bring my new stuff because it's a very high chance that they've already seen me do the thing and they want me to see, you know, they want to see something else or, um, or this, or they have a preconceived expectation of me when I go on stage and I can choose to either keep that expectation or break it. Mm, I like that. And if you're going somewhere new and curating that set, when you do that, are you wanting to have one um, that you know really well, so you feel more comfortable because it's a new situation? Oh, um, no, not necessarily. Uh, but I always have an introductory, in, introduction kind of like level piece, you know? Um, so when, when I was, when I was uh, there was one point in my life, I was like 2018, I was doing festivals back to back. And I think it was something like, I was doing three different parts of India and then two parts of Australia. And then I went to the UK. It was something like that, right? It was still back to back. And to me, the poems were like, oh my God, I'm doing this poem again. (laughs) (laughs) 
under you for the millionth time, but to the to the audience is the first time. So what I started to do was I started to to teach myself improv, and I would do an improv poetry set in the beginning of every of every stage of every place I ever went to, and the improvised piece was something to keep me on my toes and to help me like get excited about what I'm going to do and present. And it would be, it would include the audience and kind of like wrap my arms around them and be like, Hey, this is what I'm about. And this is what you're going to hear. And then I would do one piece that I've done for the millionth time. And then, uh, and then maybe, yeah, a few pieces I've done for the millionth time, but I know that I would always rely on that improvised poem to kind of get me through the set, you know, like to keep me honest as well. It's, it's nice to, to hear you talking about how you go when you're performing poems for the millionth time and how you sort of keep yourself fresh. And it's interesting that improvisation is a thing that you find um, enlivening is not quite the word I want, but it's a word that will do. And I have to say that I'm a huge fan of your improvisation, having seen you perform an improvised piece. It, it was just phenomenal. And I couldn't believe at the time, and I still don't really, that you just improvised it. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I think, I, I, yes, I remember we were together at, what's a Passionate Tongues? And I, I did two improvised pieces uh, at Melbourne Spoken Word Festival a couple of years ago. It was it 2018, right? Yeah. 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 Um, one of it was, there's one piece that I remember and I really wish I wrote it down. And it was, I, I was running in place as I did it. <laughs> and it was, <laughs> I was running and I was completely out of breath. And I remember Annie was like, are you okay? Do you need a glass of water? <laughs> but it was just, I just, I did my lines while I was running in step. And I think it was about, it was a very difficult piece about running this race as um, as a as as a poet, like how do you write a poet's profile? How do you decide what uh, what milestones are worthy and what need to be left behind? And I was just running and running to kind of build this tension as I was doing the poem. And it was a it was movement based improv, but it was very important to me. And I think it's and I think improv and improvisation in general needs to be part of the poet's toolkit. Because, yes, you can definitely go on stage and do a three-minute poem, but you need to push your craft. You need to push your abilities. And it's either you go on stage with an ukulele and perform a, a poem with song. Sure, you can also do that. But being able to improvise will totally shift your performance ability. It will open up a, a huge range of things that you can bring onto stage. I have to say that I'm getting excited about the idea of improvisation from talking to you, but also the idea completely terrifies me. And I'm wondering if you get nervous and if you, how you handle those nerves. Oh, I remember telling you in the previous uh, conversation that we had that I don't acknowledge a writer's block and I never admit to it. I don't tell people I'm nervous. <laughs> so I don't, I don't tell myself I'm nervous. I just don't. I just get into the zone. I know that um, when I first started performing, one of my best friends at the time who used to accompany me to all the gigs realized that 
I was least nervous when I was sitting down at least half an hour or 10 minutes before I go on stage. So he would make sure that I had a chair to sit down and be quiet and be still and just go through my poems and not talk to anyone and then go on stage. And he was absolutely right. And I do it to this day. It could be a panel discussion. It could be a performance on stage, anything. I just need a chair and I sit down and I'm by myself and then I do my thing. I think, you know, nervousness and butterflies, everybody is unique in that way. And I think you need to find your thing or you need a best friend who can tell you that's your thing because uh, it's, it's about what you do before you get on stage that curbs the butterflies. It's, it's about the preparation, you know, um, that I found to be most effective. So yeah, maybe for, maybe for someone else, it could be a, having a drink of water and just staring at a blank space. I don't know. It could be many different things. Some people like to jump up and down and, and, and psych themselves before they go on stage. For me, I just need a chair. <laughs> I need to sit down. It's really good to hear you, you speaking about how you prepare to go on. And I really admire your determination to refuse the whole notion of nervousness and butterflies. I think that's fantastic. And instead insist on a chair. Oh, yes. Yes. I will say that the greatest disservice a person can do to a performer is to go up to them and ask, are you nervous? (laughs) Every time there is an open mic or a slam or any kind of performance and we're all sitting in the green room or backstage and we're all about to go on stage, there'll be one moron who will say, are you guys nervous? That is the greatest disservice (laughs) that you can, uh, one person can do to another person. Because what are you going to, what is the point of that question? Who are you trying to like knock off or bring into your nervous dome? Like, what is the point? There is no benefit to that question. I, I, I try to stay away from it. I never talk about it. I don't acknowledge it. If someone tells me like, oh my God, I'm so nervous, aren't you? I just completely walk away from them and sit on my chair. (laughs) Cool. So next time I see you before a gig, I'm going to say, are you sucked? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. I'll I'll just, I'll just nod my head and go sit on my chair. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, I think you've given us so many wonderful things to think about and you've been so generous and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience. I'm just wondering if you have any final tips for aspiring poets performing who are wanting to get up there on the open mic, if you don't, that's fine also. Oh, um, I'm just going to say, I, if you're listening to this right now, I hope that you're going to go and look for a gig in your town, in your city, and you're going to sign up and you're going to bring your best poem at this point of time in your life and you're going to do it and it's going to be amazing. And no matter what happens on the stage, you can tell yourself that you've done it and you're going to keep doing it again. One thing that I did when I was starting out to keep myself going is after I've done the first gig, I would actively search for the second one and put it down in my calendar and go sign up and do the thing because it builds routine, it builds discipline. And it also keeps you going, you know, no matter how the previous one went, 
you should always start looking for the next one. That's fantastic advice, Melissa Rani. And thank you so much for joining me again on Pocketry Presents and sharing your journey from the page to the stage. Thank you so much for having me, Indrani. Thank you so much for doing this work. I'm really looking forward to seeing you in person again. It's going to be amazing when that happens. And I have to say a big thank you to everyone at home who's listening to this podcast. You can find more of Melissa Rani on socials at Melissa Rani. You can uh, sign up for her newsletter. If you're interested to find out, out about her secret newsletter, you'll have to go check out the other episode with Melissa Rani on the creative process. And if you want to know more about Pocketry, the home of unheard voices, visit www.pocketry.com.au and happy writing.